Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your host of Nonprofit on the Rocks. And with us today is Ashley Watterson, who is our producer. How are you, Ashley? I'm doing great, Matt. So I want you to know something. I think this is really important for every one of our Caymanites out there to hear. So my dad called me after last podcast, and he does listen to all of these, by the way, which is impressive. And he said, you got to stop calling Ashley mediocre. Like, you just got to stop calling her mediocre. (laughs) Dr. Cayman, I'm so glad that you had that conversation with your son because it was taking a hit on my um, self-esteem to just be constantly referred to as mediocre. On top of that, I, I tweeted at the nonprofit guy, I tweeted, what should we call Ashley besides mediocre? And I want everybody to know that you're all lazy audience members because nobody responded. Not one person did anything. Is it DM? Do you DM on Twitter? Does that happen on Twitter? As you can see, Matt's really got the hang of this whole Twitter thing since he doesn't even know what it's called when someone responds. I think it's just a comment, Matt. And someone needs to correct me if I'm wrong because I am old and it's possible that I don't know the lingo, but I thought that Telling someone to DM is direct message, but slide into my DMs is when it becomes kind of like naughty talk, right? I, I, I feel like you just completely came on to me and I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Matt, someone told me this has got to be a rumor. Are you gay? No. Who, who told you that? Who said that? Is it my husband? Did my husband tell you I'm gay? <laughs> was it Philip? Yes, it was Philip. Philip mentioned it. I think the other reason why you're ta- why you're coming on to me today is because you had your hair done today and it looks lovely. I'm very impressed by how you look and I'm proud I of us. You feel pretty. You do. You do look pretty today and I'm proud of us because first of all you've already come on to me on the beginning of the show. You oh. have talked about sliding into DMs which is very dirty and I'm still asking for people to actually slide into my DMs uh, <laughs> because I want to know besides mediocre what we should call you. Okay, so Matt is propositioning all of you in more than one way to respond to him on Twitter. I, on the other hand, am legitimately needing someone to tell me if DMing is okay to suggest to people because that's just like send me a direct message versus sliding into DMs, which is definitely the more provocative. So if someone could just, just I just don't want to be embarrassed out there. I just, I want to be able to say out loud on the radio. We're not on radio. Is this radio or is it, is it podcast radio? Podcast is its own thing because radio refers to on the airwaves and okay. we are pre-recorded for podcasts. Okay. okay. So I want to be able to say on the next podcast that somebody slid into my DM and that my husband, Philip is very <laughs> jealous. That is the goal moving forward. Somebody slides into my DM, you get fired for sexually harassing me. And we figure out another word for mediocre so Dr. Kamen could stop getting upset at me. Today, are we supposed to like timestamp this? Like, are we supposed to say what happened today so that people like a year from now when they listen to this will know? Are we supposed to do that? Are we supposed to just pretend this is normal? See, the nice thing is we try, Matt, to keep our podcast content evergreen. Mm. That's a term in the industry that means always relevant. And Mm. I feel that if we were to timestamp it, suddenly we would be not keeping things evergreen. That's why we don't want to do that. Well, I'm going to go against what you just told me in your counsel. Per usual. Yes, yes, yes. Per usual, I'm going to go against your counsel and it should get us something. And today is the first day that California opened, which is why you went to the hairdresser and got your hair did and you're sliding into my DMs. And I'm just, I'm very excited about where we're going from here. It is exciting. I 
really hope that we are on this upward trend and can stay going in that direction. Well, on that, you know, upward bound direction, we have like a few really exciting things happening today. So we have our second advertisement. How have we done this, Matt? How have we convinced yet another company to throw their support to us? I'm just kind of baffled. Do you want me to tell you how? Tell me. They weren't listening. They never listened to our show. They have no <laughs> idea what we're doing. They literally don't have a clue. They just see nonprofit on the rocks and are like, oh, that's smart. And so they're like, sure, we'll advertise. They don't listen. We have a really slick logo. They judged the book by its cover, not realizing that the book was a trashy dime novel. And the other thing, by the way, that was pointed out to me, Ashley, is that we're the only quote unquote nonprofit podcast that has an E at the end of the title. Do you want to tell our listeners what that E is in case they don't know? That E means that we are fucking explicit. That's what that E means. Like I said, trashy dime novel. Now I have to go look that term up because we have now talked about radio programs and dime novels. People can't see us, but they must just assume that based on the things we throw out there that we're like 60 years old. I mean, I'm going to be doing Botox to the day that I die. So I'll be dead for 20 years and no one's going to know it. So it is only 3.58 in the afternoon, but I have poured myself some bourbon because I want to toast you, Ashley, for being the fantastic producer that you are, for forcing me to go back on The Nonprofit Guy. And what everybody should know is you're kicking ass on Instagram. And Matt, as long as we're touting my achievements, but also just what exciting things are going on in our world, we are now on Facebook too. We are. We are on the Facebook. So uh, what I hope that means is we'll get our third advertisement coming. But for now, we're about to listen to, to my friend, Edward Tepborn, who is the executive director of Angel Island Immigration Station in San Francisco. And we've got an advertisement that's going to come in the middle of nowhere. So just be ready for it. We've got Matt's playing across America. And then you're going to get some wise words at the end from you, Ashley. So yes, we just want to remind everyone, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to our podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can also find us on our website, envisionnonprofit.com and Instagram and Facebook. So lots of ways to find us, lots of ways to listen. Enjoy this interview with Ed Kepler. Hello, Ed Tepborn. How are you? Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm doing good. So everybody knows you are the executive director of the Angel Island Immigration Station, which is a lot of words, uh, in San Francisco. And I want you to know you're our, our first guest in Northern California on the podcast. Wow, it's taken so long. I know. I know it's embarrassing. No, I know. <laughs> we only wanted you and you just you refused my calls. You refused my emails. I don't know how I bore you down, but I finally got there. You got to me. So uh, I know that you don't drink and that's the whole purpose of this show, which means, you know, I'm not going to have as much fun with you. Maybe I'll have more fun with you. But what are you, what are you drinking at the half hour? I am drinking a vintage diet Dr. Pepper you know, on the rocks. drinking some brown liquor. So I will be, you know, it's been a week. It's been a very difficult and annoying week. So I need to have a little bit to drink, but here we are. Well, so, cheers. So diet Dr. Pepper. Mm. Brown liquid. But in a but in a mug, actually. I like <laughs> it. No, I appreciate that. So you became the executive director right before COVID, right? Like just a few months before COVID? Am I making That's that right. Up? Yeah. My first day was November 4th, 2019. And so 
Uh, was really excited. It was my first ED post. Have been wanting to be an executive director since I was 21, and it finally happened. And uh, was just, you know, this first couple of weeks and months was raring to go and had all these big ideas. And then all of a sudden, January, February, and March hit. And I think like many other nonprofits, it's it's been an interesting set of roads to try to navigate for the past year. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not been great. Uh, and now you've been in it in a year. So I'm so curious. So for those for those folks who don't know, and probably most people don't, because I didn't know about the organization or about anything to do with it. Would you mind telling everybody just a little bit about what what your organization does, what the island is, um, you know, all that good stuff? Absolutely. So I think most of your listeners and most everyone has probably heard of Ellis Island before. When we think of immigration, automatically we think of the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island and how they stand as symbols to welcome how our country has welcomed immigrants to the U.S. Well, Angel Island is the counterpoint to to Ellis Island, and sometimes we're even called the West Coast version of Ellis Island. We're a former U.S. immigration station that was in operation from 1910 to 1940, and it's where over 500,000 people from 80 different countries were processed, were interrogated as they tried to enter or exit the U.S. And a big majority of those who came through Angel Island were either either Asian or Pacific Islander, because of laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and several other immigration policies that essentially banned most people from Asian and Pacific countries from naturalizing and, and entering the U.S., What my organization does is we're the primary nonprofit that works in partnership with Angel Island State Park to help preserve the buildings on the site and to uplift the histories and stories of not only people who came through Angel Island, but also immigrants who are coming to our country now. And hopefully what Angel Island serves as is that counterpoint to this important part of U.S. history where while Ellis Island is is a symbol of our welcome. Angel Island is, is, is a symbol of how we've actively tried to keep certain groups out. And and I I think what what I'm sure there's more to it this year, especially is because I know over the last year there's been an enormous increase in hate crimes against the Asian American community. So how how have I mean I don't know if 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 the or I mean you're. Is, is the island closed? I mean, can people still come to the facility? People can come visit the island, but all the buildings are closed. So the, the museum buildings, all of the historical buildings have been closed since March of last year. But what we've done is on our website, www.aiisf.org, one of our new programs was we actually started a virtual gallery. And so people still have a chance to connect with the site, with the histories, with the stories, even if you're not able to visit in person. But you're right. It has been a very interesting year, not only because of COVID, but because of the rising anti-Asian racism and xenophobia that we've seen that has been fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic. It's horrendous for me as an immigrant myself, as someone who immigrated from Thailand to Texas in the early 1970s. The racism and xenophobia that I and my parents experienced back in the 70s and 80s in Texas, I thought we'd we're behind that. We, I think we, many of us in, in the community had hoped that we were behind that. But in reality, like many other social justice issues and many other forms of oppression and racism, they've been simmering beneath the surface. And unfortunately, over the past year, we've seen it rear its ugly head. 
Yeah, it's terrible. Like, I wish that there were something that we could like say or do to like just make it better. But there are just so many idiots in this country. I don't really know how else to put it. I so okay. Well, I don't want to back up for one second. You said you emigrated in the 1970s, but you're you're way younger than I am. I mean, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> are we going to be discussing birthdays <laughs> on air here? <laughs> okay, so I'm 45. Uh, you look like you're like 34. That is a wonderful compliment. And I am actually older than you. So yeah, <laughs> I'm 47. Yeah. All right. I, I'm going to move on because we were talking about something serious. My very first memory of any kind of hatred was when I was six years old. I was in front of my parents' synagogue. So I was raised Jewish in front of my parents' uh, synagogue. And I was playing hiding go seek by myself. I was I was hiding. And I remember this, this, this truck driving by, like they went into the parking lot. They saw me. I was alone. There was no other adult out there. They all, I probably like teenagers. I'm going to assume they were probably like 17 or 18. And they all came up to me and they yelled something. I don't remember what they said, but they yelled something at me. And then literally all of them spit on me. I'm a six-year-old kid. Like I clearly remember that. And then I remember going to the bathroom and like puking because it's gross, but I never told anybody. I literally didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anybody because I was so embarrassed. I thought it was my fault. That is my lovely first experience. And then of course, you know, I never had anything else too bad, except, you know, we're all gay. We've had like certain things said about us, Um, but like, that's it. So you were talking about Texas and I hate asking this question, but you know, my very first memory is that. And it was a very, um, it's not a great memory to have. So like what happened, what were some of the things that happened to you and your family? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I mean, for a six-year-old to experience that kind of of hatred, it just it, it's heart wrenching. And knowing that that continues on today, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Asian, whether you're Black, whether you're, you're anyone who is perceived as being other, that that still goes on. I just I hope that one day we are not only a country but a world where we're people are embraced, right? And that no one has to ever experience that. Growing up in Texas was definitely challenging. Uh, It's not my first experience of racism or xenophobia, but what stands out in my mind is very memorable is in fourth grade, all the fourth graders get to go to a week long outdoor camp. And it's a thing that everyone looks forward to. And the buildup all year is like, oh, we're going to the outdoor camp. And so I had been really looking forward to spending the week with, with my friends. And we're on the bus and it's all these different schools from all around the school district who come together. And the bus parks, I get off the bus and I'm walking with my friends to the huge baseball ground where they're having people assemble. And that's where we find out our cabin assignments. And as they're calling out the cabin assignments, one of my friends next to me says to me, I can't believe they're doing this. This is so wrong. And in my excitement, I had no idea what was going on. I was just like, I'm happy to be outdoors and and (laughs) camping. And suddenly it dawned on me that all of the white students were being put into one set of cabins and all of the minority students were being put into another set of cabins. And I, for me, that was just the very first memory I have that as an Asian, as an immigrant, that I wasn't seen as being the same as my classmates. And it happened that I was the only 
racial ethnic minority person in my class that particular year. So I was looking forward to spending the week with my friends, but of course I got separated and segregated from, from all of them. And I think that that's an experience that many Asians and Pacific Islanders have until today, where we're seen through these different narratives, right? One of being the model minority where it doesn't matter how long um, we've been in this country or, or, what challenges we experience, we're seen as as being universally successful and wealthy and well-educated. And then the other narrative that so often we face is, is that of just being otherized and being seen as a perpetual foreigner. So it doesn't matter that I've lived here since the 70s or perhaps for other people, their second or third or fourth generation. Um, oftentimes as Asian and Pacific Islanders, we're, we're just not seen as being fully American. And for my parents and I, my parents especially, because they spoke English with an accent, uh, I noticed that even as a kid, that they were treated differently. And my parents actually stopped trying to teach my brother and I how to speak Thai because they wanted us to speak English with an American accent. We changed our names. So I wasn't born Edward Tepporn. We Americanized my Thai name, Tian Shai, to Edward. Not quite sure how that happened. <laughs> they don't quite sound the same, but in an attempt to fit in. Uh, and I think that's part of that pressure that so many immigrants, whether you're a kid or whether you're an adult, uh, that because of being perceived as different, because we're perceived as uh, being foreign, that um, we do what we can to tr try to assimilate and not experience this racism and xenophobia. Yeah, it's gross. It's absolutely gross. And I, 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 I it's first of all, I'm really sorry that that happened at camp. I, because I, I remember going to camp, and my, I mean, I, I had a great camp experience, except that I felt that I was fat. And so that was the only thing. But like, I really enjoyed camp. And I'm sorry that camp took that negative, that on. That's really, it sucks. I cannot believe that they did that. This is in the 80s that they did this? This was in 1984, 85. <laughs> it, it's like not even that long ago. So it's, it's really interesting. Okay, so I want to get I want to get back to this in one second. But here's what I'm curious about. And I and I feel like it's a little bit unfair and impossible to answer. And plus, I feel like this is the, the broader conversation in the country for a lot of us. But what can we do when we see acts of racism, when we experience acts of hatred, when we when we see people say things they shouldn't be saying or do things they shouldn't, what can we do to try and make this better? Yeah, that is a tough question. But I, I think that part of it is if, if we ever are the, the victim uh, of an attack or of discrimination, to definitely report it, to, to report it to the police. There are also groups that have started tracking the number of incidents of, of hate crimes targeted towards Asians. And it's these numbers are important to continue to raise visibility of, of what our communities are experiencing. It, it's also important to, to tell our stories and, and to be vocal and to let folks know that, that this is happening. I think that it also, it, especially for Asians and Pacific Islanders who are, who are experiencing this, whether it's happening to us or, or to our families or our friends or neighbors, uh, to, just as we would hope that other communities would speak up and speak out uh, on our behalves, it, it's important for us to think about how we exist in allyship and how we can be better allies to other communities like the Black community, like Indigenous communities and Latino, Latina, Latinx communities and other marginalized communities who also have a history of experiencing oppression and hatred and discrimination and violence. And, and if we want people to, to speak up and speak out for us, we also have to speak up and speak out for them. 
Obviously, this is an ongoing conversation. Obviously, this is a very difficult conversation. But I do think if we don't speak up, we repeat history. If we don't actually do something, nothing changes. And, you know, no matter what, it's really important to have these conversations. It's really important for people to know about your organization and organizations like it across the country and across the world, and just to continue the conversation. So as much as this is nonprofit on the rocks, really, and it's supposed to be, you know, just like a, you know, drinking and hanging out, it is also really important that we have these kinds of conversations and really important that we try and make some kind of difference in this world. So um, that's the goal. Yeah. I mean, we have the opportunity to be upstanders and not just bystanders. I like that. I like that a lot. We have the opportunity to be upstanders and not just bystanders. I like that a lot. I'm going to just focus on the gay thing for a minute because that's something that we could easily talk about that I feel like has improved um, and gotten better. And so here's the question that I'm going to ask you that I asked somebody else. I'm curious what your answer is. I think that kids today growing up gay are going to have a much easier life in terms of coming out and in terms of even television characters and just, Mm -hmm. you know, acceptance than we did for sure. There's hands down because when we were when we were in our in our teens and like you couldn't get married, it wasn't even an option, right? Um, so my question to you is: Do you think that that gay kids growing up today should know and understand what we went through, right, and what people are the next generation went through, or should they just not and just enjoy it and not even have to worry about it? Like, what do you think? Oh wow. Uh- you know, I'm torn because on, on one hand, the how horrible, right? Was it growing up in the 70s and 80s? I mean, I remember knowing, I, I didn't have the words for it, but knowing that I was different, not just because I was Asian or an immigrant, but because I had these crushes on, on other guys as a kid. I mean, I've known since the time I was, by the age of five, right? Who was your first crush? Who was your first crush? You Luke Skywalker, Star oh. Wars. <laughs> Who was yours? <laughs> The guy from Pippi Longstocking, the blonde friend from Pippi Longstocking. That's <laughs> my crush. Anyway, sorry. Yes. Okay. So. On one hand, right, for them to not have to endure what we went through, um, I, I do hope that it's better for for gay and lesbian and bi and trans kids these days compared to what it was like for us. And at the same time, whether it's the LGBT community, whether it's other racial ethnic communities, whether it's other oppressed or marginalized communities, the struggle, right? The challenges, the, the resiliency that our communities have had to endure are part of our history. And there's a part of me that also thinks it's important for however you identify to understand what your own communities or families have, have gone through, but also what other communities and families have gone through so that hopefully we don't repeat history. And that's part of what we're trying to do at the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation is there was this history of xenophobia that led to, to people being excluded. And then once they were detained on the island, the Asian folks were treated differently from the non-Asian folks. They endured lengthier interrogations. The conditions that they lived in were more cramped. The food that they served was even cheaper than the food that that non-Asians were served. And so if we aren't aware of our history, if we don't remember our history, if we don't understand and empathize it, then we're absolutely doomed to repeat it. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing nowadays, not only with what's happening to 
Asian communities in terms of the rise of xenophobia, but also the detention that's happening along the southern border and the debates and discussions about who is allowed to enter this country and who is allowed to be an American and what is the worth of an immigrant and their current and potential contributions as opposed to how they're currently thought of as how they're a burden, how we're a burden to society. What I love about your organization is that you're teaching stories and you're telling stories and you're reminding people of what happened so that just like you said, we don't repeat it. Although we are repeating it, right? We are repeating it, unfortunately. <laughs> so uh, so I'd love to know, first of all, when you got the job, right? Aside, COVID aside and all that stuff. I feel like, you know, like, like how did you, I mean, this is your first executive director job at such an amazing organization, right? Um, how did you feel? Like, like... How did you celebrate that night? Because I remember I called you. I was the one who I think was helping with the negotiation at the end. But like, how did you celebrate? What did you do? Yeah, I was super, super excited to get the job. And at the same time, the, nervous. I, it was my first ED post. I, it was It's an organization that's been around for 40 years that has significant, significant meaning to so many parts of the community. And um that from that first day forward, I continue to feel a huge sense of responsibility to, to carry on the legacy of the work that so many of my predecessors, both board and staff and volunteers and stakeholders have, have invested in ensuring that, number one, these buildings weren't torn down as they were originally planned to be. And that, number two, that more and more people even know what the words Angel Island represent. Unfortunately, I didn't learn about Angel Island growing up in Texas. I, I think that's probably true till today for a lot of students, whether you're in, in elementary school, middle school, high school, or even college. And so it, it still boggles my mind that uh, a place as important as Angel Island doesn't have the, the level of recognition that it really deserves. And, and I'm not talking about an organization. I'm really talking about the historic site itself. 100%. Hey, Matt. Hey, Ed. I am so sorry to interrupt, but I have to tell you guys something. So I am going to a wedding this summer and I needed to find the perfect gift. Originally, I was thinking of something porcelain. And then I was like, but what if, what if they're like more into cuckoo clocks instead of figurines? And like, I just wasn't entirely sure. So guess what? I heard about this company. It is called Charity on Top. Check this out. It is gift cards that are redeemable exclusively for nonprofits. Okay. And they have 1.8 million charities on their website that you can choose to give any amount you want to whomever you want on these gift cards. I just think it is so brilliant. And you can find them at their website, Charity on Top, or did you know that Amazon sells charity on top? So you're already in Amazon buying everything else that you ever need, if you're like me. Or The Knot, which is where a lot of people do their wedding registries, also offers the charity on top gift cards. So i definitely grabbing one of those. And I just wanted you guys to know. For a limited time only, use the promo code COTROCKS to get a discount for our listeners. So your husband, how did you guys meet? We met back in 2001. This was uh, pre-eHarmony, pre-Grinder. We actually met in, in, in the age of AOL chat rooms. Oh, I remember those. <laughs> I 
remember those. Those were gross, though. They were like predators. And you had to be careful, for sure. You had to be careful. So, yeah, it it was meant to be maybe a briefer uh, relationship that has now lasted almost 20 years. (laughs) Do you remember what his his screen name was? Because didn't we all have to have a name, like a, a fake name, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his his AOL name was, I think, something like Feeling Festive. Oh. And mine was Tybo, right? Just kind <laughs> of like a riff. And we almost didn't meet. He's going to kill me for sharing this story on a podcast. <laughs> He's listening uh, with, with a glass at the door. Uh, but he uh, his first instant message to me <laughs> was literally... Oh, Thai Bo, are you Thai? I love Thailand, to which I immediately clicked delete. <laughs> Sorry, that's amazing. <laughs> but he was persistent. And I think maybe after a week of chatting, we we finally met up and then just really hit it off. And uh, yeah, have been together ever since. You guys met without seeing each other's faces. Walk me through this. So you were in, were you in Northern California at the time? live in Northern California. And we found out that we lived a mile from apart from each other. So we did, I think, exchange photos from the neck up. (laughs) I definitely remember what you're saying in terms of the days of dial up where it was line by line, the picture would fill in and it would take five minutes to go from your eyebrow to like your nose. And so you're waiting for an hour to, to see what a person looks like. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so when you, where did you guys go? Like, so where did you meet up? Was it like a restaurant, a coffee house? Where did you go? Yeah, we met somewhere safe. I mean, because it is the (laughs) internet, of course, right? And so at the time I was living with uh, one of my best friends and let her know, okay, if I'm not home. (laughs) Call the cops. Call the cops. Okay, so when you saw him, like when you went there and you saw him at that sushi restaurant, do you remember where the butterflies in your stomach? Like, do you remember how you felt when you saw him? What really attracted to me was, was not only his looks, but also his personality. And part of it is that he is the complete opposite of who I am. I am a very introverted, quiet type of person. Maybe with 20 years of, of being together with him, he, part of his personality is maybe rubbed off a little bit. But he is the type of person who can work a room and, and thrives off of that energy. That's awesome. I, I I don't think you can have two people though who are both that way because then you're like fighting against each other for like the conversation, right? So you have to have one person who's a listener and one person who's a talker, I think. Yeah, it's a give and take. Yeah, it's a give and take. Are you guys married? We are married. Yeah, we got married in 2017. And you couldn't be happier, right? Absolutely. I mean, not just, I mean, definitely for the love, but also there's a peace of mind, right? That comes with marriage and all the, the legal implications involved and not having to worry if either one of us were ever hospitalized that we wouldn't be allowed in to to see each other. In our community, I, I really do hope that we have somewhat turned to, like we really are better than we were when we were younger. Um, I want yeah. to I mean, I, I I do hope it's better as well. And I, at the same time, I my guess is that it's probably still challenging, especially if you are someone who identifies um, across different identities. So for example, if you're Asian and gay, or if you're black and lesbian, or, or if you're, you're trans and indigenous, trying to continue to, to navigate both those worlds was something that I know for me, I never felt completely comfortable as an Asian person in the LGBT community. And as a gay man, I didn't always feel comfortable in the broader Asian American, Native, Hawaiian, Pacific Islander community. And just part of that 
experience that I think you and I had back as we were growing up is the lack of visible role models, right? Whether it was in TV or out in the community of people who looked like us. And so my hope is that nowadays for youth who are growing up, um, that there are just many more examples of who you can be, right? As, as you figure out uh, what your identity is, what your identities are, and to know that that there are possibilities beyond some of the more stereotypical ones that were forced on us when we were growing up. Yeah, no, I agree. So I want to bring it back then to your current job and your current organization. What can we do to somewhat try and make this better? What are the solutions to make these idiots stop being so horrible and, and full of hatred? I think the the most important thing is to not just sit back and let it happen and, and to talk about this and, and to make sure that whenever we see racism or discrimination or hatred or, or, or oppression, regardless of whether it's happening to the Asian community, the Black community, the Latino, Latina, Latinx community, or, or the Indigenous community, or, or whatever community, that we don't just stand by and let it happen, that, that we really... Um, are interwoven in, in allyship and looking out for each other. I think that for me is an, an important and critical piece in terms of the hate attacks that are happening. At the same time, I do think that there's a systemic piece in, in all honesty. And so as long as there is that continued level of discrepancy where communities like ours are are just marginalized and invisibilized, then it's so difficult to continue to, to not only raise the histories, but also get the important services to communities who truly are experiencing challenges and struggles. So I would love for you, if you wouldn't mind, to share a story of one of the families or somebody who came through that you feel like people should hear, um, something that you'd like for, something that you'd like to share, a story that got to you or, you know, you think people would want to know about? Let me share the story of, of Tyrus Wong. He was one of the illustrators for the movie Bambi, and he was responsible for some of the beautiful backdrop scenes that, that you see in Bambi that are, are very akin to a, a Chinese painting. So Tyrus actually was detained on Angel Island as a young boy. And for me, that is especially poignant to what is happening now on the southern border where we see kids in detention camps. And, and I think that Tyrus's story is, is a reminder of just, number one, how horrific it is to place a child into a detention center. And, and then number two, just the contributions that immigrants can go on to make it to U.S. society and U.S. culture. And, and I think his story is an important reminder of that. One of the things that Tyrus did to occupy his time while he was in detention was one of the, the staff had given him a piece of gum. And so what he did was he took that piece of gum, chewed it, and then put it to, on top of or attached it to a radiator and then would watch the radiator heat the gum up so it would like fall as a string to the floor and then it would harden and then he'd pick it up and then he'd put it back on the radiator. That's one of the ways that he just passed the time while he was in detention. Uh, we know that at Angel Island, if, if I were a male child over the age of 12 traveling with my mom, I would have been separated from my mom and detained with the, the other, the men uh, at Angel Island. And so there's this history of not only children's detention, but also family separation. Again, lessons that hopefully 
we would have learned a long time ago and not repeated, but that are unfortunately repeating themselves. All I can do is sigh. Can you give me a positive story that happened out of Angel Island? Something that can be uplifting for people who are listening to the show so we don't all pull over and, you know, scream? Yeah, there, I mean, definitely there's so many stories of of just strength and resiliency uh, at Angel Island. I think one of the challenges that, that many of the, the immigrants there faced was that they never knew how long they'd be in detention or when they'd be called up to take part in, in their special board of inquiry, which was just this interrogation where they got asked questions about where did you live? How many windows were in your house? How many stairs were in your home? And if you're if your answers didn't match the answers of your witness or the person that you said was your relative here in the U.S., then that could be grounds for deportation. And so there were a number of people who tried to help immigrants through that often very intimidating process, uh, especially imagine going through that process if you didn't speak English, right? And, and so one of the interpreters that was hired was uh, a woman by the name of Tai Leung, and then she married uh, one of the staff at Angel Island uh, named Charles Schultz. So she she was not uh, an Angel Island detainee herself. She actually was staffed there. But what I love about her story is it's an early story of interracial love and interracial marriage. Uh, unfortunately, the two of them had to ultimately give up their, their staff positions at the immigration station because back then the laws didn't allow for interracial marriage. And uh, she, what's interesting about Tyler and Schultz as well is that she is believed to be the, the first uh, Asian woman to cast a ballot, a, a voting ballot here in the U.S. That's cool. That's really, really cool. Why should people come visit? What should they, what would they come see when they can finally come back? What are some of the things that they can come see at, at you know, at the museum? Yeah, Angel Island is just a beautiful island, first of all. So it's about over 200 acres of hiking trails and biking trails. And so for anyone who's a nature enthusiast, some of the the most amazingly beautiful views of the bay are there. And there were about 30 acres on the northeast corner of the island that were set aside to, to serve as this former U.S. immigration station. And there is something so palpable about stepping foot on that historic place and walking in the buildings of the former barracks where where immigrants were detained, that you feel a sense of connection to history. You get a sense of this mix of emotions, the hope that immigrants might have had when they first landed, arriving in the U.S., followed by the the, the confusion about what was happening and all the processing and then ultimately some of the, the desperation and frustration the longer that they were detained. And all those emotions are just so palpable as you walk through the barracks, especially because in the barracks building, there are over 200 poems that were carved by Chinese detainees that, you know, if walls could talk, right? And we literally have walls that can talk because these poems represent these emotions, these these themes of, of what the, the detainees endured. And, and it's these poems that actually helped to save the buildings and allowed us to get California historic landmark status as well as national historic landmark status. And so I definitely invite if you've anyone, if you've never been out to Angel Island to see the U.S. Immigration Station, it, it is a, an amazingly beautiful, serene, yet emotional place to contemplate what does it mean to be an American and who gets to be an American and how do we want to treat immigrants both now and in the future? 
when was the last time you were there? I was just there last week. I, I had the opportunity to go out there. We're working on some uh, a couple of projects to number one, open up one of the buildings that's never been open to the public before. The, the former public health services hospital building was actually in danger of falling down. If there'd been an earthquake or a strong storm, there was one wall that was only attached to the roof and not to the ground or any of the other walls. And if that wall had fallen down, the entire building would have gone with it. Wow. But after a seven-year renovation, that cost $12 million that was raised in, in public and private funds. We have been able to save that building. We've renovated it and we're reimagining it as the Angel Island Immigration Museum. So we're hoping that we're able to open up that new building in the near future. What's really lovely about this new building is that it takes the story of Angel Island. We, we had the detention barracks, which were restored about 10 years ago. And that is a wonderful testimony to the people who went through Angel Island. But one of the things that we've wanted to do at the foundation is to really connect the history of the past with what's happening today and in the future. And so this new museum building allows us to diversify the stories that we tell. And uh, I'm so proud to have worked in partnership with California State Parks and a number of key stakeholders uh, that the foundation has had to incorporate exhibits that focus not only on the immigration policies that have been exclusionary, but also those policies like the Immigration Act of 1965 that finally opened up new opportunities for immigrants to come to the U.S. We also have an exhibit that focuses on how the hospital was used to enforce the, the medical exclusion at the time. And the, the exhibit that I'm actually probably most excited about is called Opening Doors. And it features different immigrants, both those who came through Angel Island, as well as uh, a student who uh, is a DACA recipient, uh, people who've come across the Southern border, and, and just to have the opportunity to, to tell more of the stories of the 80 different countries that are affiliated with Angel Island. It's really amazing. I, I, I can't imagine being the executive director of a nonprofit of a, like an actual facility for people to come see who can't go see it. So, I mean, I know that there's a lot you can do online and, and digitally, but it's not the same as seeing it. Also for you, like you became the executive director of this organization in, you know, a few, a few months before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit and you couldn't go. So like as, as an executive director of an organization where you should be there, that you couldn't <laughs> be there, right? And you literally just started. How did you do that? Like, how did you get by without being able to go there and see it? I think for me, I am the type of person who is a pragmatist, right? And, and so for me, I had to really think about this is probably going to last a while. We know we knew even from the history of the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation, uh, when we looked at some of the plagues and, and the flu that happened, uh, the smallpox pandemics that happened in, in the 1910s and 1920s, that these types of, of pandemics don't come and go in a month or two months' time. And so for our board and staff and in partnership with California State Parks, we really had to, to think very quickly because it, the sites shut down uh, almost immediately. How can we ensure that people still have a sense, uh, an opportunity to experience uh, what it's like to visit the island? 
Uh, so we, we pivoted to virtual programs. We created a, an online exhibit uh, that uh, has been really, really fascinating to cultivate. Uh, some of the, the first exhibit we did focused on the poems that are in the building, but we also invited community members to submit their own poems of what they were feeling now in times of pandemic. We had another exhibit that focused on the importance of food to immigrant communities and how food can be uh, a way to build new friendships with your with with the new communities that you're immigrating to but also have food has as a reminder of the the homelands we left and how food can be a source of economic support and and entrepreneurship for for many immigrants and so forcing ourselves to be creative i think was one of the silver linings if there can be a silver lining in everything that's happened over the past year so i do agree like however it is that you can, how any of us can make it cool to be able to be online and not actually be there um, is a testament to what your leadership. So um, I'm impressed because to take over an organization as an executive director and then the pandemic to hit and you can't even go see it is impossible. So I am very impressed, very impressed that you figured out what to do because it's so hard. It, it really is... Um a testament to to the board of the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation and previous versions of it that, that the buildings are still standing and, and that uh, we have the stories that we have to be able to tell. Every year we lose um, someone who was detained on Angel Island. Many of the detainees are in their 80s and 90s. And so with each passing, unfortunately, that that little part of history often disappears with them. And so there is definitely this race against time to collect the, as many stories as we can while, while these detainees are still alive so that we can honor the journeys that they've been on uh, and really the contributions that they've continued to make and that their descendants continue to make. And uh, all of these stories are, are part of this important quilt of, of American stories that, that deserve to see the light of day. When was the last person, what year did that person come through the island? Uh, so 1940 was when the, the site stopped being used as an, a U.S. immigration station. There was a fire in the administrative building. And so after that, it stopped being used as, a, as an immigration processing center. But during World War II, the barracks building was still standing and the hospital building was still standing. And so those two buildings were part of an army military site where POWs were housed. And also there were about 700 Japanese Americans from Hawaii and across the West Coast who were sent to Angel Island to be temporarily processed before they were sent to other sites uh, across the the West Coast and the Midwest. So uh, I think... In terms of immigration, 1940 would have been the last time that an immigrant stayed there. But 1945, I think, is when the last person who was detained on Angel Island was moved. Well, I definitely hope that anybody who's listening to this puts us on pause, goes to look up the website and really understand the importance of your nonprofit, of of the stories that are there. And at some point, whenever we can travel again and we can go to San Francisco, it is a, first of all, a beautiful place to go. I don't work out. I don't hike. I don't do anything in nature. So the island itself wouldn't be of any interest to me, but, um, but the facility would be, and actually it's funny, um, just, you know, on a lighter note, my business partner, right? She knows I don't like the environment. When I die, she's going to put on a bench in a park. This is for Matt Kamen, who hated everything about the environment and this park. So just everybody, (laughs) I'm a bad person. I don't care about the environment. 
Uh-oh, everyone. I hear some music. I see Ashley dancing. It's that time again, Ashley. Is it called Matt's Playing Across the Country? Is that the time? Or is it Matt's Playing Across America? <laughs> Either or, but it is definitely time for some Matt's Playing. Here is the question. This one coming from Instagram from Mary Beth. Mary Beth wants to know, what happens when a board of a nonprofit stops following the quote rules? Not taking minutes, not using quorums to vote, not holding annual member meetings, and putting a nonprofit in such a precarious place financially that it's nearly ruined. She said she couldn't get help from state agencies. She's had a real hard time. She said, How do you hold a board accountable? Okay, this is a horrible thing, right? Because the board of directors is ultimately liable for pretty much everything in a nonprofit. So if they're not doing their job, you are going to be investigated by the attorney general. It is going to be very bad. They may shut you down. They could like there could be a lot of lawsuits happening. It's not good. So, I've got two answers. The first is if you are a board member on the board and this is what's happening, you need to at the next meeting get up, tell them everything that's going on, tell them what's wrong, make sure it's in the minutes and then resign. So that it's very clear that you let them know and then you quit. If you are the executive director, then you need to sit down with your executive committee and say, "Hey, all these things are happening we need to fix. If they don't fix it, you need to resign because it's very bad. You don't want to be named in a lawsuit and at the end of the day, if they continue to do it, every contract that funds is going to ask for their money back. Staff are going to sue because you're probably not paying them correctly. All these bad things are happening. Leave." So that's what I would tell you. Try and fix it. Get it out there, and if nothing else, leave. That is great advice, Matt, and thank you to Mary Beth for writing in with her question and you can write us your Matt Splain questions through either Instagram, Facebook, or our website envisionnonprofit.com. Sorry, Ed, for the interruption, back to your interview. So, if if somebody's listening to this and you said that you, you know, you wanted to be an executive director, now you are. Um if there's somebody who's listening to this who says the same thing, I want to be an executive director somewhere. Uh, do you think that's a wise choice? Um, or uh, what would you tell that person? Should they do it? Should they not do it? Like, I would say absolutely. Have your vision, have your purpose. Think about what is the change that you want to make in the world and whether that's being an executive director, whether that's being a program director, whether that's being a coordinator or manager, whatever that looks like. Um, I think the most important piece is, is being centered in knowing what is the impact that you want to make and figure out what's the right role to, to make that impact. Uh, it's definitely not an easy job. As an executive director, you're pulled in so many different directions. There's so many different audiences that, that you have to be sensitive to and attuned to. And it's impossible to make every single one of those audiences happy. If somebody were to go online right now and they wanted to write a check to a nonprofit, why should they give to yours? The history of Angel Island is such an important history, but is still unrecognized and, and needs to see more light of day. And people's support will really help us to ensure that more students, more adults understand that it has not always been this rosy welcome of immigrants when we think about American history. We're, we're seeing that today. And Angel Island is an important, important reminder of not only what immigrants have endured, but also the amazing contributions that immigrants have made. And, and both of those things can be true at the same time. 
Is there anything else that you'd like folks to know about you, about nonprofit, about anything, anything else that you want to share? Uh, just uh, another reminder to, to visit us online if, if you can't visit us in person, and that's www.aiisf.org. If you go to the website, you can learn about more about the history of Angel Island. You can see some of the 250 stories we've collected about immigrants. You can see our, our virtual exhibits. And then you can also find out more ways that you can support our efforts to, to lift up these important histories and stories. Well, I really appreciate you. I apologize that I placed you in a job, which was three minutes before COVID. And, <laughs> but I am so happy and so amazed by you and cannot wait to come visit. And you'll take me on a tour, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to hike. I'm not going to go hang out in nature, but I am going to come see the facility. (laughs) And you and I can go to a bar. You'll just drink diet Dr. Pepper some more, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and, and Matt, thanks for the opportunity to to be on this podcast. And uh, just want to say that in going through the hiring process with with Envision Consulting, uh, I definitely appreciated uh, how supported I felt through the entire process. Interviewing can be so nerve wracking. Uh, And the interview uh, that, that the foundation had put together really put me through the ringer in terms of thinking critically about what I wanted my contribution to potentially be to to the foundation. But throughout the process, uh, I really did feel supported by you and your team. And I I think that that is uh, really a testament to to the work that y'all do. Thank you, Ed. I have never had anybody on any of the podcasts say anything positive about us at Envision. And actually, I should use the podcast somewhat to talk about Envision Consulting. (laughs) (laughs) So I really appreciate you. I appreciate the shout out. I appreciate you. Um, and I hope people do go online, learn more about your, the stories of the organization, learn more about what we can do uh, at the end of the day, just to make this world a better place and also to appreciate all of us. So I thank you, Ed, so much. And I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you, Ed. Thanks. Take care. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. I want to just tell you something that is going to make you excited. Not only did we have our second advertisement today, not only are we coming up with the brand new word for you, not only are we starting Matt Swain across America, not only do we live on the podcast page. If you go to nonprofit on Apple, we're there. We are the first logo right before the fold. And so I need all of you to subscribe, to give us five thumbs up, to say something about Ashley in the comments, whatever you want to say, she appreciates it. And just to continue to enjoy what we're doing, because as we've said before, this is all Ashley has. It really is. My self-esteem is completely intertwined with the success of this show and the amount of likes and listens. Honestly, I've not watched The Social Dilemma because I am terrified of what I will learn about myself if I watch that. (laughs) Because I have a feeling it is going to go right to the heart of how I am way too invested in the amount of likes and listens that we're getting for the show. Well, I do want to just say one more time, we are right below the fold. Let's just one more subscribe, one more like, and we're going to be on top of that fold. Like, that's it. We're there. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode with Edward. Is there anything, Ashley, I know you love it when I ask you this question, but is there anything else that you would like to leave with our Matt heads 
that you think they should know? Honestly, it, this is my fault because I know going into these conversations that you're going to ask me this question every time. And do I do any prep work for that? I don't. And I, this must get back to my days of improv where I just like refuse to prepare or my days of high school, quite honestly, um, and taking tests. Like I just refuse to prepare. It's, it's kind of my motto in life. Um, but no, I, I need a better answer. I'm going to return to the same thing I always tell everyone, but it is important. And that is, we want to hear from you about what questions you want to have Matt explain to you. Help our listeners jog their brain as to the types of questions that would do well in a Matt explaining environment. Sure. Should I work a nonprofit? No. Should I join a nonprofit board? No. There's your answer. Anything else, Ashley, that you want people to hear? I think people are so glad that they got those in-depth answers from you. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so do do find us through our Instagram or Facebook or through our website, envisionnonprofit.com. And uh, tell us what questions you would like Matt explained. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you for doing your hair. I do it for you, Matt. Okay. So I can slide okay. into your DMs. <laughs>